Hello, welcome to the Healing of Emotional Wounds podcast series. My name is Alan Mulhern. Today we're going to look at six ways in which healing intelligence operates in the psyche. We're therefore continuing our reflections on the nature of healing intelligence, how it works. These are theoretical considerations that come a little closer to the unknowable thing in itself. Remember Kant's ding and sick, this unknowable noumena, which is the healing essence near the heart of life and the consciousness process itself. I say life and consciousness because from the point of view of evolution, healing lies at the root of the life process because the early cells that evolved on Earth had the capacity for self-repair. Otherwise, life could not have survived and developed. The impulse of the life force must have been immense in order to overcome the difficulties stacked against it. It's as if, from the very beginning, a cosmic principle that life and death are pitted against one another. This is a principle one can observe in Hindu philosophy where the dancing Shiva holds the drum of creation in one hand, drumming creation into existence, and in the other, the fire that destroys everything. This is the creative destructive principle of the dancing Shiva, called the Nataraja in the famous dancing image. This philosophical and metaphysical principle is carried over into psychology with Freud's life and death instincts, Melanie Klein, the good and bad breast, Stanislav Grof, with the early primal experience of life and death in the womb and birth experience. And I believe it to be central to the whole of psychological development, since anxiety, and fundamentally a death anxiety, lies at the root of human psychology and of its consciousness. Therefore, the light and the dark, the positive and the negative, the life and the death forces, as it were, in the psyche, are in continual struggle, just as was depicted in Hindu metaphysics. The impact on the early cell life system would have been immense from disintegrative and destructive forces, disease, radiation, noxious gases, volcanic activity, viruses, bacteria of all kinds, which were also life forms, life form feeding upon life form. As organisms have evolved to greater complexity, repair or healing mechanisms proliferate in similar complexity and profusion. A healing program, as it were, is built into the life system. The psyche, conceived as consciousness and the unconscious, mysteriously evolved from nature, so it too, like the body, has natural, instinctual healing mechanisms. Considering healing as an inner process, and presuming the ego and its repressive apparatus of defences, its identification with select aspects of personality, and its filtering repressive functions, supposing that these have been sufficiently challenged during the course of therapy or during the course of personal development, the drama of healing may begin. The major ways in which this healing intelligence expresses itself can now be described a little more closely. Firstly, wounded areas of the psyche often have the capacity to heal themselves, especially when these areas are naturally healthy. 
Someone with a healthy self-esteem who receives a blow to self-confidence may recover rapidly. Good recovery is a sign of a healthy psyche. Its self-repair mechanisms are intact. This is largely unconscious and is dependent on the natural vitality or healing potency of the psyche. It works best when the psyche is uncomplicated by trauma and when, on the one hand, there are natural positive characteristics such as courage, determination, love and trust, and on the other, when there is an absence of negative features such as guilt, shame and doubt. When positive features are deficient or negative features dominate, then healing intelligence is blocked or compromised and it becomes the task of any healing process be it a love relationship or a therapy of some kind, to build up the former, positives, and diminish the latter, negatives, so natural healing energy can be released. In psychotherapy, certain techniques facilitate this process, in which location of the wound, self-expression, and receptivity to other parts of the psyche, followed by catharsis, is very common. The expressiveness and receptivity of the wound area indicate the vitality of healing potency. Secondly, one area of the psyche may help heal another. One component of the psyche may suffer an emotional wound, which may be expressed in the imaginal body, such as the heart area, love feelings, or throat, expressiveness, or stomach, primal security. It may not have the capacity to heal itself, the wound being too deep or chronic. In these cases, another area of the deep psyche may help the healing process. For example, an area of love might heal an area of anger or trauma. Or the area of intuition might provide deep insight, helping clear long-standing resentment. In these cases, healing depends on two factors. Firstly, the potency of the area of love or intuition. And secondly, the fluidity and transformative energy between different areas of the psyche. Notice, with respect to the area of love, in cases where there has been insufficient experience of love, particularly in one's early years, this capacity of giving love later in life may be lacking. For all these matters of moving different parts of the deep psyche, spiritual practice is beneficial. In depth psychotherapy, it is possible to observe these dynamics at close hand. However, similar dynamics take place in the everyday psyche outside of psychotherapy. Higher forces in the psyche also have active healing functions. The world's religions abound in stories of healing and miracles of all kinds arising from higher forces in the psyche. Some of the healing miracles reported in the New Testament done by Christ have, from my viewpoint, a tripartite structure. Firstly, the urgent request for healing by the sick. Secondly, the request for faith by Christ, in our terms a requirement for the suspension of ego and the opening to the numinous. And thirdly, the transmission, sometimes in the form of touch, of transcendent energy to the sufferer. In-depth psychotherapy of the type described here, access to these powerful forces may be possible. To use an example from the language of chakras, the sixth chakra, situated between the brow, can scan the psyche, locate wounds 
and promote their healing. In this case, healing intelligence is facilitated by the potency of one area of the psyche and the receptivity of another. Such healing may not be permanent. The wound may still exist, but temporary alleviation of the suffering may prevent the subject from destructively acting out and damaging love relationships. Thirdly, partial healing of the psyche may take place as a result of an equilibrium process by which one healthy part of the psyche counterbalances another area which is wounded. Many wounds are not healed exactly, but are compensated for by opposing movements in the psyche, in which case consciousness is changed since the wound or complex, which so frequently dominated it, is counterbalanced by the emergence of another healthy part of the psyche giving an opposing point of view or attitude or energy. For instance, one part of the psyche which has a grip on the ego holds a negative self-opinion. This may be counterbalanced by another part which has a positive view. This is not direct healing of the wound but some measure of balancing and healing of the psyche as a whole. In addition, the practitioner should be aware that healing of emotional wounds may take place in a temporary manner and that a wound may migrate to a different, sometimes unexpected area of the psyche, thus freeing the original area of its pain. For example, a love wound to the heart chakra can migrate to another chakra. Thus the heart becomes capable of loving again, though the wound or complex may be hidden elsewhere in the psyche. Fourthly, inner awareness has a vital healing function when it is in union with the deeper psyche. The linking or integration of the conscious and the unconscious is the great union of opposites, and the collaborative harmony of these two major areas of the psyche is the major goal of healing and the individuation process. However, consciousness and the unconscious each have many components. A specific component of consciousness, inner awareness, has a special healing impact when it is brought into union with individual parts of the unconscious, such as localised wounds or complexes in the psyche. Inner awareness is distinguished as a part of consciousness, operative when the rest of consciousness is in suspension. The activation of this inner awareness is a special catalyst for healing. The ego, when unawakened to the transformative possibility lying in the deep psyche, tends to block the transformation process, being frequently identified with cognitive processes out of touch with the deeper psyche and speaking a language antithetical to it. Inner awareness, however, does not interpret the wound, whence it came or how it arose. It simply stays with it. This process activates the healing energy within the wound, which needs this vehicle this specific component of consciousness, inner awareness, in order to express itself. This union of opposites, the wound, the complex, on the one hand, and inner awareness on the other, produces a transformative dynamic in the psyche. On the one hand, consciousness is expanded, since it is now linked to the deeper psyche. On the other hand, healing intelligence and transformative emotions are released from their confinements in the unconscious. Fifthly, intelligence within the deep psyche has the capacity to reorientate consciousness. 
The psyche may be distorted and divided when consciousness and the ego are severely out of line with the deeper psyche. This deeper psyche has messages and information looking to rebalance the psyche, correct for its one-sidedness, obsessions and complexes. The most obvious example of this is the dream world, which can send continuous messages to the dreamer to correct the conscious attitude. Wounds, in order to be healed, usually require consciousness as a vehicle to express themselves, hence catharsis and new understanding. This in itself often requires a change in attitude on the part of consciousness, so it begins to listen and eventually interpret and express the intentionality of the deep psyche. The ego and consciousness thus ideally adapt to the healing transmission mechanism and therefore play an indispensable role in its realisation. It is important that ego consciousness retains some critical independence of the deep psyche. A creative dialogue is required, not a complete submission. However, this is not a dialogue of equals, since the deep psyche is now accepted as the great originator and container, while the ego corrects its illusions of mastery. Michael Washburn outlines the healing impact of the return of the ego to oneness with the ground in later life after a long period of repression. So as the ego returns to the oneness with the ground, with the unconscious, previously termed, after a long period of repression in which the ego has been developed, but then there's a return to the ground, a return to the unconscious, then there's tremendous healing impact and the individuation process proceeds. Notice this is a very similar model to, for example, Ian McGilchrist in his book The Master and the Emissary, so termed because the right hemisphere of the brain, the master, so to speak, has the emissary, the left hemisphere of the brain, roughly translated as the analytic part, the part that tries and breaks down and understands things, we have a model here rather like the ego and the unconscious in the Jungian and depth psychology model, don't we? However, the ego, or the left hemisphere, can think it's the master. The individuation process means a balancing of these two factors, probably with the right hemisphere, and certainly the forces of the deep psyche being expressed fully. To quote Washman, the ego here begins to experience the power of the ground, as a redemptive force, the ground is the unconscious, the deep psyche, that heals rather than slays, and graces the ego with raptures and ecstasies. As regeneration of the spirit unfolds, however, the ego's experience of the power of the ground is increasingly positive. The integrated stage that commences at this point is therefore one that is both powerfully infused and peacefully composed. It is a stage that transcends all darkness and violence. Beautiful observation by Washburn of the redemptive power, particularly in the second half of life, as the ego connects in with the deep psyche and its redemptive and transformative properties are experienced. This is, of course, quite similar to the Jungian model, where in the second half of life there is an individuation process leading to a union of the conscious and the unconscious. It's also similar to Maslow's 
self-actualization process. Sixthly, healing intelligence in its most developed form is the activation of the wholeness of the psyche. To the extent there is strong interconnectivity between diverse areas of the psyche and healthy potency in many parts of it, then there will be a natural vitality and healing potency of the whole, a capacity for self-repair and growth. There are some people who feel an incompleteness and lack of wholeness so intensely that it is a wound, a state of suffering, the overcoming of which is the embracing of the natural wholeness of the psyche. This wholeness has elevated and sometimes mystical states or peak experiences which have tremendous healing and reorientation power. The experience of wholeness is the intelligence of the deep psyche which is in union with consciousness. The awareness of the main chakras, for example, as an experience from base to crown, functioning in harmony, is a wonderful healing experience. There is a philosophical problem about the origin and operation of healing intelligence that parallels the debate of whether the self is a specific archetype of order, growth and integration, or is it the totality of the psyche? The same question applies to healing intelligence. Does it come from the self, or is it in the totality of the psyche? There is a certain ambivalence in any answer to this, or any similar question on the self. Take, for example, self-reflection and our capacity to track its neurochemistry, i.e. the neural correlates of self-reflection. We would expect this neurochemistry to be exclusively located in the frontal lobes, wouldn't we? That is, in specifically human parts of the brain. Well, actually, this is only partially the case. The correlates are located in both the frontal lobes, the medial prefrontal cortex, but also deep in the limbic system, that is, the more primitive part of the brain, in the posterior cingulate cortex. The neural system that serves self-reflection operates in parts of the brain which are widely distanced in evolutionary development. It's as if the deep unconscious and the highly conscious must be linked to allow self-reflection. And in evolutionary terms, it implies that our self-consciousness has emerged from deep within our instinctual system. That is, our consciousness is both in the human and the primitive sides of our brain. Healing intelligence, in its full expression, depends on the whole functioning of the psyche. Multiple operating centres in conjunction with the self. These centres include consciousness, well, actually inner awareness, the personal unconscious, actually the different centres that hold our emotional structures, like chakras, the collective unconscious, the self and archetypes which underpin and interact with our emotional centres. It follows that healing intelligence operates at different levels. Primary intelligence is in the self, as Jung elaborated. The transpersonal, that Francis Vaughan describes so well. The dynamic ground, Michael Washman. But this is incomplete without the collaboration of the other areas of the psyche and their healing centres. The totality or greater functioning of healing intelligence, therefore, requires the whole, or at least a more whole, functioning of the psyche. 
maybe it's not the whole of the psyche that's operating, but certainly increased parts of the psyche are in operation, creating more wholeness and therefore healing and transformational effects. The metaphors symbolizing this process in the world's religions, mythologies, fairy tales, literature, music and arts are those of light and darkness. Wounds lying in the darkness of the psyche are numerous. Darkness here signifies not only unconsciousness, but especially negativity, since wounds usually lie in the unconscious, covered with the protective negative shell. Task of healing in the early stages is location of the wound and penetrative comprehension. That is, penetrating the wound's negativity by comprehension of its defences. Light in the psyche has also different sources. For instance, the light of consciousness, a portion of which is the inner awareness just mentioned. There are other sources of light so powerfully described in Tao and Chakra practices. This light is not simply a metaphor, since the subject experiences it as an inner reality. In chakra terms, for instance, there is a light coming from the sixth chakra in the brow. Washburn, remarking on the liberation of the ground after the lifting of primal repression in the developing individuation process, quote, At this transition point, because it is liberated from exclusive association with the instincts, and it is disburdened of the resistance of the ego, the power of the ground expresses itself as luminously intelligent and affirmatively outreaching as conscious light and love. That is, it is able to express itself as spirit, experienced as pure luminous consciousness, either in the form of a powerful objectless contemplation or in the form of interior fluidic light. Daniel Brown, in his cross-cultural study of contemplative experiences, reports that at a certain stage, quote, awareness opens up to the substratum of ordinary perception, namely an incessant flow of light in the stream of awareness, unquote. The very energy that normally functions invisibly as the medium of awareness here becomes the object of awareness, manifesting itself as luminous consciousness. That's Washburn, The Ego and the Dynamic Ground, 1995, page 128. The interplay of dark and light, wounds and healing, consciousness and the unconscious, are central motifs of transformation stories. In our next podcast, we shall examine the impediments and resistances to healing intelligence, its repair system and growth, which are also symbolised by darkness. We shall also examine the resonance of therapists, sometimes called empathy, and its crucial impact on the healing process. I hope you can join me then. Thank you.